Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Today we're going to be talking about the church. There are a lot of questions on this. It is a remarkably intense argument within the church today is what in the world is the church? And there are different perspectives coming from different backgrounds. Earlier today, in one of the uh, pre-church Bible studies, we were talking about the group called the Essenes. Many of you have probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They became the rage back in the 1950s when certain texts, ancient texts, were found hidden out in the desert, buried in pots. And they dug them up and they found out there was this group called the Essenes, right? That people hadn't really heard about. So they started to categorize and classify the interpretation of the church in, in lieu of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And even books came out saying maybe Jesus was the Essene. Maybe John the Baptist was an Essene. And as things sort of went along, eventually we found out, you know, this was just a group, a small group of guys with this strange kind of cult that lived out in the desert about 100 years before Jesus was born. And maybe they didn't have a great influence on the church, but also maybe they weren't a part of the church at all. They never went to the temple. Jesus went to the temple. Jesus went there when he was a boy. Jesus taught in the temple. Jesus preached the gospel in the temple. And Jesus was horribly persecuted by the people that ran the temple, right? But he spent his entire ministry preaching and teaching in the temple. Jesus didn't reject Judaism. He rejected a certain interpretation of Judaism. And so as we go all the way back through the Bible, when we read the entire Old Testament, what we find is what we today call the church under age. The church under age, not in its fullness that came with Christ, but it was there. We even see Abraham in this strange meeting that he has with a guy named Melchizedek, who it says was the priest of God over the kingdom of Jerusalem. Way before there was a Jerusalem, there was obviously a Jerusalem. And way before Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob, there was already a church thriving in Jerusalem with a true priest that is identified in Scripture as a true priest of the true God. Just because there was only Abraham that was called didn't mean that there weren't other people that God knew at the time. And there's a testimony of that through Scripture. These people from different places that still knew the real and the true God, right? As we go through scripture, we see God bring together his church around this one person, Abraham, who through his children, he brought forth the 12 tribes of Israel. And through Israel, he brings forth Moses. And Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives the law from God so that all the people know how it is he's supposed to be worshipped. And there's an entire uh, curriculum set out with all kinds of different things to do, different clothes to wear, different ways to cut your hair different ways to eat different foods, all to be set apart for the coming of Christ. They even had the Passover lamb, which was a lamb without blemish that was slain, and its blood flowed, and then the people consumed it as a sacrificial meal to bring them closer to God. And then when Jesus came, everyone identifies that lamb as truly being Christ. He's not only the lamb, he's also the scapegoat that's sent out of the city, out into the wilderness, and he's also the sacrifice that happened on the altar that was burned. All of these things teaching about Christ to come within the context of a body of identifiable people that were presumed to be believers. Now, as much as we look back to the Old Covenant and we see things that are different from the church today, really, most things are the same. They might look a little different, but it's the same God. And the same Messiah that they saw coming 
is the same Messiah that we look back to. The one that they saw a thousand years ahead of them is one that we see 2,000 years back. But he's all of our Savior. They believed in the same Christ then that we believe in now. We just know him more clearly. So a lot of the artifacts of religion and a lot of the signs and a lot of the tells have been swept aside not because they weren't good, but because they're not necessarily as good for us. We see clearly things that to them were far off. So in this, when Christ comes, the first thing that he says is the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And he starts to talk about the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. One of the distinctions between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the different terminology they use to teach us different things. And Matthew is really focused on the coming of the kingdom. And it's been the judgment of the church through history that when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about these people right here. You and I, right here, at this time, are the kingdom of God in history. And it's been unfolding for 2,000 years, and it will continue to unfold until Christ returns. So that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the church are really the same thing. Now, I know there's a lot of confusion about this. There are entire movements, like I talked about one movement a few weeks ago. I didn't name it, but I talked about this movement that their thing is they are apostles, and they are appointing prophets. And where they focus on their church service is in the continual unfolding of God's word because they don't want to get too stuck up in this book, right? They want a fresh new revelation for now. And so everything they do and all the decisions they make are when they get together their prophets and their prophets speak forth the word of God to them. The thing is, there's no outline like that in Scripture itself. Scripture itself assumes that Scripture itself is sufficient for our every need. And even at the end of the book of Revelation, it says very specifically, don't add anything to this book. Don't add anything to this book. Really, the church did not form the book. It's an interesting question, right? With a lot of our friends from other denominations, they would say, well, the church wrote the book, so the church can rewrite the book. And we would say, no, the book created the church. The book is where we go to find out what it is to be the church. The book is where we go to find out what it is to be a Christian. And the book gives us everything that we need for faith and life. It is true that God used the church as a means, especially early on through the apostles and the prophets, to set forth his infallible, inerrant word. But that doesn't mean that we put it together like it was just a group of guys. And they didn't have much better to do that day. So they decided to write a Bible. So when we receive the word, it tells us who and what we are. But there are different interpretations of the church. Our interpretation in our specific tradition comes from what great event of the last 500 years? The Reformation, right? The Reformation was an interesting time because of its time and place. Roman Catholicism was at its height and its greatest power. It had been coming for about 500 years from about 1000 AD down to about 1500 until everything, all of the politics, all of the princes, all of the kings, all of the nations were integrated into the church and the church had become the highest superpower in the area of the world. And they had armies, and they had princes, and they had kings. And sometimes, even today, we look back on that era with a kind of fondness and nostalgia. But we have to remember that everyone here, the odds are you would not have been princes or kings. You all would have been slaves, every one of you. 
We were also talking about in the Bible study about why there's such different languages, even in England. As, you know, you go to one area and they talk one way and they have Cockney and they have all these different sub-languages and dialects. Some of them have come over to the United States. People from New York speak like they're from New York and people from Boston speak like they're from Boston. And people from Georgia, we're not sure what they're doing. <laughs> But the dialects come over, and the reason that their dialects were preserved is because they weren't allowed to travel from state to state. When they made the United States, they even preserved into the Constitution that we have the right of free travel. In other words, you want to move to Tennessee, they can't actually stop you. Not that you'd want to. I'm just saying, right? You have the right to travel anywhere in the United States. You have the, and so our language kind of comes together in a different way because we're all interacting. And they were trapped in one specific place because they could not go anywhere else. They were owned by whoever had power over them. So when we glorify the ancient foundings of our civilization, let's not overdo it, right? If it were that great, we wouldn't have broke off from those folks, frankly, right? With that, though, we can lose things. We can lose things. In England, for example, for a while they had one church. One church, that makes it so easy, right? You were born, you were Anglican. They baptized you, stuck the mark on you, yeah, you're a Christian now. What's the downside to that? The same downside that they had in Israel, where every male child born was circumcised, and every male child born and female child were members of that community, members of that church underage, because not all of them believed. And without faith, what's a blessing becomes not a blessing, right? So as we get into the idea of the church, in our American experience, right? This is the oldest denomination. This church you're in is part of the oldest denomination in the United States. It goes back 300 years, well, 200 and something or other. And one of the things that they found as being particularly important is this. That the people that call themselves Christians actually live the way Christians would live. That the people that call themselves Christians would actually live as Christians would live. They didn't hold to the doctrine of what's called the spirituality of the church. We're in here, we're all going to be all spiritual, right? But we don't really care what you do out there. That's between you and God. Isn't that a strange doctrine? But I guarantee you that's probably the most popular doctrine in the United States of America. The idea that if you have 50,000 people in a church, it's a better church, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's good for folks. If you are a member of a church, or you're going to a church, and you've never met the pastor or any of the elders, and you can get in and out of there without meeting anybody, sometimes if you're careful, for years at a time, dodging and parking in different places, making sure the people with the small groups don't catch you with a notepad. I don't think that's best, all right? It's big. It's got a lot of money. It's powerful, but I don't think it's best for the individual Christian. They're supposed to know each other. They're supposed to be accountable to each other, right? So these things that are going on in American Christianity, we're not immune to them. We need to study them. We need to understand them. We need to understand our time and place and context but there's this idea that the kingdom of God is the people that believe. And there's an, perhaps an actual form to it. Now what we're getting down to is this. There's a difference between the nature of the church and the form of the church, right? The nature of the church is who we think are and are not Christians. And everybody has to make a decision about that kind of thing. Like we would say, the people that believe in Christ are Christians, right? 
What's the classic text for this conversation? It's not really about baptism. It's about whether or not somebody's part of the church. But the who on the cross? The thief on the cross. Jesus is right next to him, baby. The thief on the cross, right? Perhaps, you know, Jesus is on the cross and he's dying. And there's a thief on each side of him. And one of them mocks him, right? And the other one says, don't mock him. He's the Savior. And Jesus actually proclaims, this day you will be with me in paradise. And so we use it as this idea of, well, that means that baptism is not necessary for salvation. And that is evidence for that, right? But what it's usually been used through history is, is evidence for salvation outside of the visible church. See that? I mean, we all know this idea that we came up with, and certainly I came up with, is you know, we don't need a church, and we don't need walls, and we don't need elders, and we don't need deacons, and we don't need pastors. We just need Jesus. And what does that look like? It's usually a big mess. God seems to have gone to great lengths in Scripture to form a church. That's where the nature of the church is everyone who believes, right? But the form of the church is whatever God said to do to make the church right. Here's why it's dangerous. I'm going to tell you why it's dangerous. Because you have to give authority over you to someone else. And if there's one thing that we know that human beings do when they're given authority, it's they abuse it, don't they? Submitting yourself to someone else is hard. Also, plainly, it's biblical. There's a place where Jesus even tells the people that believed in him in regard to the church authorities, hey, they sit in Moses' seat. So when they're telling you to do what Moses said to do, do it. But don't become like them, he says. Now, what a scathing attack upon the religious leaders. So there's this idea that's very prevalent in our society that the church is a dangerous place for you, for your emotional and psychological well-being, for the community, that if we just have Jesus and don't have the church, we'll be fine. But if God ordained the church then there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the form of the church, is whether or not there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings to distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Isn't that beautiful? Because this is the beginning of the church. A few things that we notice here is certainly there was community. 
They know each other. They dwelt in each other's homes. They broke bread together. They ate together. They prayed together. And they went to the temple together, right? Community is not something that's abstract. It's something that's practical. What that means is if you don't know people, you can't have community with them. When he gets down to things like having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. That's a key thing. Those that were being saved. The two things that people grapple with today in the churches are inclusivity and exclusivity. At the seminaries, they talk about this all the time. One says the church is entirely inclusive. Everybody comes in. And that's probably not true. And exclusivity says nobody but this very specific kind of person comes in. And that's probably not true. Right? Exclusivity tends to say, okay, if you're not a member of our church, you're not a member of any church. You're not even a Christian unless you're a member of our group. And you can tell because it says Christian on the door. This is a real thing that happens in churches, right? And the other one says, we have no standards whatsoever. You believe, you don't believe, anybody, it's for for everybody, it's for everybody and for anybody, and it doesn't have any standards whatsoever. And these two things dominate the public discourse around the church. But it's not what was happening here, right? The thing that we have together in common is Christ, and so we come into the church through the door of faith. All those who believe are welcome, right? Right? Now, don't we have kind of a standard that we would like anybody whatsoever to come and hear the gospel of Jesus? Absolutely. But when we get into the form of the church, it is actually for those who believe. Now, is it the mere fact of stating that somebody believes something that's our entire standard for whether or not somebody believes? What do you think? Is it just a set of words that come out of mouths? Because in the Bible, that happened again and again and again and caused problems. Or is there an actual life that's correspondent to this text that tells us a way of living and a way of being that is actually the testimony that the words of our lips are actually coming from the heart and not just from the head? There's a way of life also. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, It says this famous verse, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and much more as you see the day approaching. Now, I know you guys know that famous text, but it does say something important. That's why everybody uses it. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Well, what else can they be talking about there than the church? Are they talking about a pinochle club? The entire context of it is that we come together. Not only that, but God saw church as being so important that he set aside one entire day out of every sixth of your life. One-seventh of your life is to be spent within the context of the church the way that in the old church, one-seventh of their lives was spent within the context of the temple. One-seventh seems like a lot, right? You could really be washing your car that day. And yet God did not make a Sabbath because he was tired or because he needed one. God set aside one day out of seven because he knows you need one, and without one, you will probably fail. You'll probably just fall apart through time as seven days a week you work and labor and scrape for more, more, more to accumulate for the well-being of this life when exactly one out of seven needs to be a testimony to the next life, right? Here's another verse. Acts 20, 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Now, this gets into an interesting issue. 
who exactly did Christ purchase with his own blood? And I know that many of you were taught, as I was taught when I was a child, that obviously Jesus purchased the entire world and everybody in it with his blood. But the scriptures say more than that. Yes, his blood fell on the ground outside of Jerusalem. He was not a spirit on a, fl on a fluffy cloud. He was flesh and blood, even as we are. And when his blood fell, it fell on the earth and sanctified the earth. And now he says, the earth is mine and every inch of it is his. But not everyone has been paid for with the purchase of his blood. All those who believe in him. All those who believe in him. And Christ invites all and Christ compels all come to that cross. And yet those that reject and those that deny and those that hate, he passes by. I know that's an interesting aspect of theology for us to take up in greater detail another time, but the church are those purchased with his blood. Now here it also says, all the flock over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers. The word overseers there is the word for elders. It's the word Presbyterian. We don't have a Presbyterian form of church government by accident. As a matter of fact, most of the churches in the world of whatever theological background are tending to become Presbyterian through history. It wasn't that way a couple hundred years ago, but it's that way now because Presbyterian means run by people, chosen by the people of that particular church to oversee the spiritual well-being of their hearts. And so at this church, the overseers are chosen by the members of the congregation, right? And the members of the congregation are the members of the visible church that Peter calls a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And so all of you are members of that priesthood, right? One of the important aspects of the visible church is that you can see it. Now this is the part that in contemporary theology tends to be cast aside. You don't have to see the church. The church isn't the building. The church is the believers. Is that true? It is true, right? It's not the building. But there is a building. In the Old Covenant at first, God built a tent. And it went around with the people everywhere. And then Solomon built a temple. And then they burned it down and they built it again. And then they burned it down again. And maybe someday it will be rebuilt. But the fact that there's a specific place and a specific time for the people of God to come together seems to be something that we draw from Scripture. That's what they did, and we do it because they did it. And they don't seem to have done it in an arbitrary fashion or as a bad thing. They seem to have done it for the well-being of the entire community of the saints. There is the invisible church, and we all love the doctrine of the invisible church. That You can't tell who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. It's between them and God. And they might be in the church and they might be out of the church, but there's this ancient phrase that I want you to remember from the church. There is not normally any salvation outside the visible church. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought it was crazy. There's not normally any salvation outside the visible church. Does that mean there's no salvation outside the visible church? We already talked about the thief on the cross, right? He was outside the visible church, but he was in paradise with Jesus. We believe there is salvation outside the visible church. As a matter of fact, if somebody comes to the church and they say, I want to be a member, what do we do? We talk to them and we see if they're a believer. And if we identify them as a member of the invisible church, we, of course, invite them to be a member of the visible church, right? So the presumption is, of course, there are believers outside the visible church. That's how they become members of the visible church, right? The visible church is a specific institution 
with pastors and elders and deacons and perhaps buildings or perhaps not. A building isn't essential to it. It just helps. Perhaps a sign, perhaps an order of church government so you can know what's going to happen. I've had several of you tell me that you ended up in the Presbyterian Church because of painful experiences in churches with random forms of church government that did not protect the people, especially from abuses from on high. So that there's an actual form of church government that's taught in Scripture is a very, very important thing. It protects you, it protects them, and it keeps the church honest through time. You can always discuss and argue about what you think that church government is and what you think it's not, right? There are a lot of disagreements about that. But just like in a family, there's order, or in a government of a state, there's order. In a church, there's supposed to be order. The Apostle Paul uses that adjective about the church several times. There is supposed to be an order. So what the church has meant in this, and there have been some churches that have said there is no salvation outside of their specific church membership, right? Many of you come from those backgrounds. And what you found out is, yes, there is. Outside of their little club, there's salvation outside of their church, right? But the normal order for the Christian is to be a member of a specific group where they share their gifts with you and you share your gifts with them and you come together in an accountability between all of you for your mutual benefit, edification, strengthening, and the perpetuity of your salvation. You guys have all heard of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, right? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that somebody that is truly a Christian will never fall permanently away from the faith and will on the last day be raised again, right? We all have that other discussion about once saved, always saved, or can people lose their salvation and all of those things? Well, the scriptures are adamantly clear on the fact that nobody has ever lost their salvation. Like it was just here a minute ago. Sure, I had it here somewhere. There's no losing that because you didn't gain it yourself. It was the Spirit of God that raised you spiritually from the dead, saved you, and sanctified you, and he will make you persevere to the end. Do people sometimes go out of the church? Yeah. Do they come right back in later? Most of the time, right? So the visible church is not the identity of the invisible church, but it is a pictorial representation. Do I know that every person that as a member of this church is truly a Christian. I actually do not, right? Is it my strong presumption? It absolutely is. I don't ever think to myself, anybody at this church is not a Christian or doesn't really have faith. If you're a member of the visible church, you have the presumption. You also have the mark. You have the mark of baptism, which is God's external fallible seal representing your salvation, right? And so we have these distinctions between these churches. But here's the thing. When you're out there wandering on your own and you doubt to yourself one day, am I saved? What do you look at? What is your testimony? What is the witness of that thing? Now, I know the most powerful witness is Christ. Christ has me. I believe it. I read in his word. Everybody who believes in him will be saved. And I believe that's the most powerful But people tend to have doubts. There's another old phrase, and that's that the surety of salvation is not essential to faith. What that means is people that have real and true faith sometimes doubt whether or not they have faith, right? That happens to us. None of us are as strong as we like to appear to be. All of us have weaknesses. And when we come to this, what we find is this. 
I can also look at my baptism. All three of them. I can also look at my baptism and say, you know, it wasn't just me alone thinking I was okay. The church, all three of them, (laughs) said we are going to pour water on you representing the pouring of the Holy Spirit, although I was immersed. And we're going to dip you down under the water. And when you come up, we are going to have put a mark on you as the church saying that we also know you're a Christian. And you're going to become a member of the church so that you will be one of our members. Now, all of you know that in the book of Revelation, it talks about God having a book of life, right? And that all the names of those who believe are written in the book of life. And most of you probably think it's a figurative book or just a nice way of saying things. But I believe it's a book. Because, I mean, we have books, and God wrote a book. God's not immune to books. He likes books, right? I mean, I, I know all of you use, like, you know, uh, accounting software now to keep track of things, right? Well, they can do that in heaven. Uh, so there's an actual list of the members of the visible church. And there's a list that has all of the membership of what we call the Catholic Church, which includes all believers in all times and all places, Right? <clears throat> But there's also a kind of an impetus here for different things that the Apostle Paul makes very clear are supposed to be, like pastors and elders and deacons. We brought up that three of the guys have been nominated for deacon, and we're going to have an election, and you will either approve them or disapprove them. Now, that's where guys get really interesting. As soon as they find out we don't just appoint them, like the Episcopalians, there's going to be an election, and you actually have to approve of these people who are going to serve you. And they always get a little uncomfortable on that, you know? Like, who's going to vote them down, right? But if there's an order there, then the order happens within a specific time in a specific place so that the presumption of Scripture is there is a visible church in history. And if there is a visible church in history, we do have a little bit of a duty to be a part of it, to be a part of it, to contribute to it. We have a duty to be one of the people that stands up and says, this person is worthy or not worthy of being an officer and casting our vote so to speak and we have the duty to judge their character and whether or not they actually should be such an officer I've told you before about my Roman Catholic friend that comes to me every six months and tells me how mad he is when they replace his priest right because he has no say he just shows up and there's some new guy there wearing a dress I'm sorry But the participatory nature of the true church demands our involvement. It does. But it also affords us great protections. It does. Uh, And, uh, you know, we're going over this in the text. Nobody, Nobody needs you guys to join this church. I'm telling you, this church is doing fine. We got a lot of members. The church is financially sound. We're not doing a membership drive. We're talking about something necessary to the text. If you think to yourself, well, you know, church has got to get members. They got, there are churches like this. I guarantee you this isn't one of them, right? This church is very sound. It's, it's okay, right? There are many people that I talk to and have talked to over many years of ministry that I've had to tell you should probably go to a different church. It is a real thing. Where should people go to church? Where they know that they love what's going on there and they believe the doctrine's being taught there and they're going to be able to happily sit and commune with the people of that particular time and place 
and they're going to be able to submit themselves to those doctrines without feel like it's driving them crazy. There are churches that I love and pastors that I love deeply that I could never sit under their teaching for like three weeks in a row. It would drive me bonkers because just when it comes to certain things, we just, we just disagree, right? Everybody is not for every church. This is just one church, right? Everybody's not for every church. But everybody should be a part of some church. And that's really the whole exhortation that we're going over here. Not everybody should be a part of this church, but everybody should be a part of some church. Because it seems that that's one of God's means to our salvation, our actual salvation, also to our sanctification or growing through time, and eventually to our glorification on the last day. It's him putting together a specific body of believers to care for us and nurture us through time in this specific form that he calls the church with a specific form of church government and with officers and teachers and a congregation that works together toward the kingdom of God. So that's what we're talking about today. I'll give you one more verse from Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are so good to us. And we praise you and thank you for your church, Lord God. For your invisible church, which counts all Christians of all times, all who believe in you and all who have ever believed in you. And we also praise you and thank you for this church, Lord God. For this church that you have blessed with your spirit. We pray, Lord God, that you would just continue to bless her and purify her, Lord God. You would purify her in doctrine and you would purify her in life. That you would just carry her on to all the appointed goals that we do not know that you have appointed to her. We praise you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing number 274. Oh, sir.